0: This episode of Mission Log is brought to you by the official Star Trek Starships collection. Get the Enterprise D for only $4.95 when you sign up today at st-starships.com slash Mission Log.
1: Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. Episode 204, Violations.
2: Welcome into Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. I'm
0: Ken Ray. And I'm John Champion. Each week on Mission Log, we watch an episode of Star Trek, taking it apart from messages, morals, and meanings to figure out whether the whole thing stands the test of time. This week, violations. Not
2: the Depeche Mode musical episode for which I'd been hoping. This one is, um, this one is actually darker than Depeche Mode. And that is really saying something. (laughs) This is the one... It's kind of tough, because people like an idea of what we're going into before we go into it. Mm -hmm. Um, This is the one with the mental intrusions, let's say.
0: Well, that's one way to put it, sure.
2: That is one way to put it, yeah. And that's that's probably the... uh, This also might be a good time for a warning if you're listening with people with little ears. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, uh, some people and i don't blame them maybe this is not how you want to introduce this topic to those people so if you got kids listening um yeah maybe listen first and see if you uh if this is an episode that you want to share so we're going to get into all of that in just a bit but first a few words about a bunch of starships are you a collector of stuff
0: yeah you know you you know that we've talked
2: about that before yeah i was actually talking to uh The people listening to us. Sorry, Mm. I I, I should have have (laughs) clarified. I apologize, John. No, I was actually talking to the people listening about the official uh, Star Trek Starships collection. Uh, Here's how this works. Twice a month, you will get a new starship. Some of those will be Federation. Some of those will be from other worlds, other civilizations, if you will. Um, You'll get a magazine filled with production notes, design notes, and in-universe information about the ship. And you'll get a digital download of the magazine so that you don't, you know, mess up the magazine. Because if you're collecting, you don't want to do that. Now, you get all that for 20 bucks a pop. That's two ships a month, $20 each. It's a ton of groovy stuff with no shopping involved. It all comes is straight to you. You don't even have to think about it except for the part where you have to start.
0: <laughs> right, and maybe the best part, you can demo the whole thing with the Enterprise 1701-D, perhaps you've heard of it, get that, and it's accompanying magazine for $4.95, just to try it out. The address to do that is at st-starships.com slash missionlog, st-starships.com slash Trying it out not only supports this show, thank you very much, it also gets you a fleet of fun. That address again is st-starships.com
2: slash mission and we do thank the good people at Eagle Mouse for sponsoring uh, this week's show. It's interesting, you say, maybe you've heard of the 1701-D? Mm-hmm. I hear they got a great bar.
0: They do, they do, and they <laughs> spend it's, a lot of time there.
2: Yeah, they do, yeah. and who wouldn't? If you had a bar like that, with that kind of view, please. Mm-hmm. You'd be there uh constantly, I think. <laughs> hey, what's your favorite bar? You wanna tell us? <laughs> or maybe you could tell us about, I don't know, Star Trek or your or your spaceships or heck, maybe you just want to say hey. Lots of ways to do that. Mission log pod is the address to find us on Facebook, Skype, and Twitter. If you want to leave us a voicemail, we would love to hear your voice. Three two three five two two five six four one is the number to call. Three two three five two two five six four one. Our email address is MissionLog at Roddenberry.com. Our show website, including discovered documents and pictures of your very own starships. By the way, if you've built your own starship, we'd love to see that, too. (laughs) We'll put up pictures of anything. Got a picture of your cat dressed up as a Star Trek character? Send it in. Mm -hmm. MissionLogPodcast.com is our website. And please do remember, we may use your comments on an upcoming episode of Mission Log. We also... From time to time, use the trivia people send in, John.
0: Oh, we do. That sounds like my cue for trivia. Well, today's episode, Violations, uh, the story is written by Sherry Goodhearts, Pamela Gray, and T. Michael. Now, we discussed Sherry before. She started as an intern on the show. We covered two of her earlier episodes, The Most Toys and Night Terrors. T. Michael. There is very little professional or personal data on him. Uh, This is his one and only writing credit. He has one music video directing credit and a couple of producer credits, most recently the reality series Little People, Big World. And Pamela Gray uh, also has this as her only Star Trek contribution, but she continued to write for series television like Once and Again and The Divide. The script here is credited to Pamela Gray and Jerry Taylor. Now, it was directed by Robert Weimer. Uh, this is the third time we've had Robert Weimer in the director's chair. Prior to this, he helmed Who Watches the Watchers and Data's Day. And by the way, Ken, we mentioned this Last week, because the, the story that Geordi tells about his childhood having a traumatic experience was actually written for this episode, so mm-hmm. now we've arrived at that episode. <laughs> In Hero Worship last week, Jordy is describing what was going on, and apparently... They had written these backstories and memories for all of the major characters, but then in the editing process, it kind of narrowed it down to the three that they wanted to focus on for this show. So that's why we have that Geordie story in last week's show. In this episode, we also have a flashback to a slightly younger Picard, and he's got hair. Now... Don't get confused. There are photos of Patrick Stewart lifted from this episode and publicity stills from this episode, which are used to illustrate how he might have looked during his audition for Picard when he was asked to wear a toupee. And finally, it was Gene Roddenberry who relented and said, OK, get rid of the toupee. We'll uh, we'll go with a bald Patrick Stewart. Um, By the way, in that scene, we also have a slightly younger Beverly Crusher who is considerably more blonde. Now, that is Gates's real hair. Most of the time since season three, we have only seen her with her Beverly Crusher wig on.
2: Wait a minute. What?
0: hmm Yep. Really? I, she I had a I Beverly Crusher
2: not. wig the whole time? I have always assumed that at least half of Marina Sirtis's hair
0: <laughs> is yeah.
2: not Marina Sirtis's hair. But I always thought, I did think that she was doing something weird with her hair in season three. Mm-hmm. But I, I really thought that I was looking at her hair.
0: So in season one, what we saw was mostly Gates's real hair, and then she left during season two. And by the time she came back for season three, it was decided to stick with the wig because it was easier to match for continuity. Hmm. There you have it. (laughs) Okay, a fun bit of correction in this episode for the HD remaster. Uh, Deanna's quarters are on deck eight, and when she exits the turbolift, the sign originally read... 03, 03 turbo lift. They digitally corrected this to 08 in the new version. Um, so they step in on deck three, and then they, or she steps out on deck eight. But here's the thing I'm a little surprised that they corrected that because to me, the 03 could have just been the number of the turbo lift, not the deck number. Uh, mm-hmm. The flashing light inside the turbo lift does actually travel five times, five decks in the scene so that is definitely correct um but yeah i thought that was kind of an odd thing to fix but they fixed it anyway
2: it's it's like whatever the little thing is that bothers you right right i think we've talked i think we've talked about this before george lucas spent like you know 187 billion dollars mm-hmm. fixing star yeah. wars the empire strikes back in return of the jedi right and yet when you're in the cockpit with luke on the way to dagobah uh, yep. the whole cockpit is moving, but the letters stay exactly where they were. <laughs>
0: right, right.
2: Hundred eighty-seven billion dollars, and they didn't fix the one thing that always like drove me crazy
1: mm-hmm.
0: about yeah. that movie. Yeah, yeah. couldn't do motion tracking with that nineteen ninety-seven <laughs> no. digital. No,
2: no, couldn't possibly. I, I, you know, just put in some other robots and, and change Cloud City. Nobody'll notice. Ugh. The letters yeah. that just stay exactly where they should.
0: Don't get me started. <laughs> <laughs> um, so uh we have a new set in this episode we have the morgue set uh the old one where we actually saw something like a morgue was a redress of the cargo bay mm-hmm. uh so this is a new set pretty uh, fancy looking and we have a few more in jokes that uh, they like to do from time to time on the computer displays here um we have names of crew members showing up like uh the director uh weimer we also have gary hutzel taylor as in jerry taylor uh rich Thorne, and more so if you freeze frame We can read a bunch of those. Now let's talk about guest stars. Jev is played by Ben Lemon. In addition to a number of 90s TV guest roles, Ben also appears in the movies Liar Liar and one of my favorites, Hot Shots Part Deux. (laughs) Uh, More recently, you've seen him guest on True Blood, Desperate Housewives, and House. Uh, He had guest roles on the old and new Beverly Hills 90210 as well as Melrose Place. Tarman, Jeff's father is played by David Sage. Um, He's a little under the radar, but still a pretty recognizable character actor from numerous TV guest roles. He shows up on Hill street blues, Dallas quantum leap, LA law, Jag, the practice, the West wing. He appears in the movie, the Birdcage, and he plays two different roles in Babylon five, the TV movie, the gathering, and then almost unrecognizable under heavy alien makeup in the TV series for, uh, for one episode. Eve Brenner is INAD. Now, Eve had a few roles here and there, but her career as an actor really exploded in the 90s. After this, her first of two Trek appearances, she appeared in Dr. Quinn Medicine Woman, Profiler, Seinfeld, Ally McBeal, Just Shoot Me, The X-Files, The Practice, ER, and just so much more. Interestingly, her very first credited role is on The Adventures of Superman with George Reeves. Still working, Eve had guest roles on Modern Family and the Zach Galifianakis comedy, Baskets. We have a new doctor, Dr. Martin, played by Rick Fitz. Uh, Rick has had a very prolific career, everything from soap operas to feature films. You've seen him on T.J. Hooker, Seinfeld, Friends, Modern Family, Knight Rider. Yes, he was on Moonlighting. Yeah. He will be back, <laughs> he will be back for another Trek appearance as well on Voyager. And making his second appearance as Jack Crusher is Doug Wirt. When we first saw him in the holodeck sequence with Wesley in the episode Family, this time he's back in a considerably less talkative sequence.
1: Meet the Yulians. They are great. Well, two of them are. Okay, maybe just one of them. prologue. Keiko O'Brien is
2: being led through a sort of hypnotic remembrance by one of a group of three Yulians. They're telepathic historians, and the leader of the group, Tarman, is helping Keiko unlock the memory of a cup and a sort of humming. In the end, she remembers what the scene was and who was there. It was time spent with her grandmother while she was doing ink brush painting. Keiko's been trying to unlock that memory for years and is overjoyed at the results. Tarman wonders who's next for the party trick. He suggests that Dr. Crusher may want to remember more about that first kiss about which she's thinking. Though Tarman's son, Jev, reminds him that he's not supposed to read Memories Without Permission. Yeah, you're right, son, but sometimes I just can't help myself. Especially with a lovely lady like the good doctor. With no takers for the trick, the assembled group disbands, leaving only Jev to look around shiftily as we head to the opening credits. Act 1. Data and Geordi are talking over the persistence of memory. Not the Salvador Dali painting, Eh, but kind of. Data doesn't get the inability of humans to call them up automatically. Memories, that is. He's also confused by the fact that good memories and bad memories sometimes share as much headspace, while other memories get none at all. You know, this would be an excellent time for a short story about a childhood trauma suffered by Geordi. Instead, he'll talk about remembering his first pet and not remembering his last birthday. Senior staff is assembled for dinner with the Yulians, Jev is explaining the library of restored memories they're planning, though he's interrupted by Tarman, who, let's face it, does everything better than his son does. Tarman is also confused. Seriously? No one at this table will let me paw through their brains? Counselor Troy asks whether all Yulians can probe memories. Einad, the third Yulian, says no. Takes a lot of dedication which brings Tarman back to what a loser Jev is. Hey, Jeb, remember that time you worked two days on unlocking a memory from someone that I was able to unlock in one hour? <laughs> you suck at things. Jeb leaves abruptly, and Troy follows to check on him. Jeb says he gets annoyed being taunted in public by his father. They talk over how difficult it can be to have an overbearing parent and say their goodnight. In her quarters, Troy is preparing for bed. When she's overcome by a memory... She and Will, her Mzadi, are cleaning up after a poker game. Will's reminding her of the good old times, when they'd be inclined to see each other's bathing suit areas. He'd like to do that again. Though she says they can't. Not while they're serving on the same ship. But he persists. But... Wait. it It's not him. It's... It's Jev. And he's not stopping. In her head, Troy is being raped by Jev. In reality... She's left unconscious on the floor of her quarters. Act 2. Troy is in a coma, and doctors Crusher and Martin cannot find any cause. It doesn't go unremembered that Troy left last night's dinner with Jev. Riker will quiz him about what, if anything, happened. Jev does, of course, play dumb. They talk briefly. They said goodnight. That's it. Jeb's setting off Riker's spidey senses, though. He says Dr. Crusher would like to examine all of the Ulians for a possible contaminant that could have led to Troy's condition. Jeff reluctantly agrees. Back in sick bay, a touching moment between Riker and the comatose counselor. Even if she can't hear him, he's here. Dr. Crusher interrupts the scene. He's here, not sleeping. Go to bed. That's an order. In his quarter, Riker's working on some iPads when he's overcome by a memory. An ugly memory. When he had to make a call that saved engineering but lost a crew member, Ensign Keller. Another crew member is yelling at Riker about killing Keller, but it's not a crew member yelling at Riker now. It's Jev. Unable to shake the images, Riker falls unconscious on this desk. That's where and how Worf finds him, as we had to Act 3. Act 3. That's two unexplained comas so far. Dr. Crusher has examined the Yulians but found no contaminant that might explain the comas. The symptoms look to Crusher like irisene syndrome. Its effects kind of look like what's happened to Troy and Riker. They'll put Geordie on it. He'll talk to the computer about what elements on the Enterprise might be causing such symptoms. Also, Worf can't help mentioning that none of this happened until the Yulians came aboard. And, sort of supporting his suspicion, Crusher says the parts of the brain affected in both Troy and Riker are associated with memory. Addressing the issue with Crusher and Picard, Tarman is offended by the implication that anything having to do with the Yulians has led to the comas, but the three agree to be observed doing another memory probe. That might be a dead end, though. Crusher's examination of Keiko, the only crew member to have her memory probed, as far as anybody knows, her examination shows not even a trace of the effect seen in Troy and Riker. In her office, Dr. Crusher is still puzzling over the irisene syndrome, when she's overcome by a memory. A younger Jean-Luc Picard is leading a younger Beverly Crusher to see the body of her deceased husband, Jack. But soon, both Picard and Jack are replaced in her memory by Jeb. You'll never guess what happens next. Act 4. Geordi and Data are talking over Geordi's inability to find any causes of Erosine Syndrome aboard the Enterprise. They're on their way to tell Dr. Crusher, who they find slumped over her desk in an apparent coma reporting to the captain, he wants data to look into planets the Ulians have visited in the past and cross reference them with any unexplained comas on those planets. Speaking of unexplained comas, Counselor Troy has woken from hers. Talking to the captain, Troy says the last thing she remembers is brushing her hair, then waking up in sick bay three days later. Time now for a meeting with the Yulians. This one doesn't go as well as the last. Picard is asking the three to confine themselves to their quarters until they can figure out what's going on. Jev has what he thinks is a better idea. Why not let me probe Counselor Troy's mind and see what happened? Picard says that seems a bit risky, so no. A perturbed Tarman will not confine himself to quarters. Starting right now, a more level headed Inad argues for Jev's plan. We're being accused. We can get at the memory of what really happened. You can safeguard Troy as much as you like, but nothing will happen to her, and we really need to look inside her brain. Picard says he'll talk it over with Troy. And Troy is up for it. Something awful happened to her, and she needs to know what it was. And with that, Jeb begins his guided probe of Troy's memories. She was brushing her hair when she was overcome by a memory. Cleaning up after a poker game with Commander Riker. It's a pleasant memory, Until Will won't take no for an answer. He's forcing himself on her. Except... Except it's not Commander Riker. The person forcing himself on Counselor Troy is Jev's father. Tarman. Act 5. Jev and Picard are talking over Tarman's apparent crime. Tarman says he's innocent, but come on. Jev says Tarman's never been one to admit when he's wrong. If the Enterprise wants to prosecute, Jeb's homeworld will be behind them. Nothing like this has happened in centuries, and the punishment is quite severe. Anywho, Jeb tells Picard that he and Inet are monitoring Tarman's telepathic abilities. Don't worry, he won't hurt anyone else. And he is sorry for what happened. Data and Geordi are continuing their look into the Ulian travel logs when Geordi finds an interesting fact. Two comas that occurred while the Ulians were visiting planets happened while Tarman... Wasn't even there. He was back on his home planet. Jeb stops by Counselor Troy's quarters to apologize again for what happened, to lament that they cannot be friends, to say goodbye. Troy says they can be friends. And this trips something in Jeb. He cannot control himself, and starts once again to impose himself on her mind and her memories. Troy fights back, physically. While she does a good job holding her own, Jeb knocks her across the room and tries to get away. Luckily, Jordi and Data have put two and two together. The only Yulian that was present for all of the comas through all of their travels was Jev. Data, Worf, and a couple of security officers arrive at Troy's quarters in time to stop Jev from inflicting more damage. In a conference room, a sheepish Tarman says the best doctors on his world will help in the Starfleet officers' recovery. Then he calls it what it is. It's been three centuries since we treated anyone for this... This form of rape. They thought that they had put such practices far behind them. Tarman is wrecked that something like this could happen again. It was a time of great violence for his people. Picard gets it. Earth used to be violent, too. They found ways to deal, but the seed for such violence remains in each of us. We must recognize that because that violence is capable of consuming each of us as it consumed your son. Tarman hangs his head as we head to the end
0: okay so ken and everybody listening this is the part of the show where we kind of get to unwind a little bit (laughs) um and you know we we have our our funny observations and then we move on to the heavy stuff yeah this is an episode full of heavy stuff it is. Um,
2: not that there's not some dumb stuff to say. Come on, it's us.
0: No, of course, yeah. of course. There, there there are some funny things in here, but I, I kind of have a, a mix of both. Um, finally, though, I have to say that there is something good with Keiko yeah. that I like here. Yes. Um, we actually got an email not that long ago from somebody saying, like, oh, why are you... Uh, why are you coming down hard on Keiko? And, and it's not Keiko, it's the way that the relationship is written <laughs> right. with Keiko. Right, She is literally just there to serve the purpose of saying, O'Brien has a wife.
2: Right. Don't try to correct Keiko, for that is impossible. Instead, try to remember <laughs> the truth. There is no Keiko.
0: Right, yeah. right, right.
2: We love her as much as you can, a fictional character, I think. Well, not as much as men not as much as Minuet, I mean, certainly, but, you know, almost, right. any. yeah, she's great. And and finally, right. you're right, she gets to do something great in this episode.
0: Yeah, yeah, so it, it was a nice opening of the scene. Now, I kept thinking that if Tarman were really bad at his job, he would just keep saying, oh, there's something in the cup, it, it, reach for it, what is it? It's a brush, okay, now now put the brush in your mouth, what does that taste like? <laughs> okay so your your grandmother's doing chinese calligraphy writing okay now now put the paper in your mouth what does that taste like he just uh, completely does not understand that's not how humans interact i don't
2: know thought. though i would say there'd be a bit of starfleet training in him if that were the case there would
0: be what's there the rule be, yeah you
2: want to know the universe you got to taste it taste it You, taste it. <laughs> you got to. yeah yeah that's what admiral champion told me
0: mm-hmm. data and Geordie are walking in a corridor and they're talking about something that i find So fascinating with memory that it isn't easy or controllable or even accurate in human beings most of the time. And we've talked about this before a lot on our show. Um, It's kind of just a a pet interest of mine. And um, I want to get a little more into the specifics of what the Yulians are doing in the next segment, but I'll park this here. To say that they're in an area that I think is really cool, is really uh, a great topic to explore. Also, uh, memory RNA is not a thing. <laughs> um, this is It was interesting because here this show was shot in 1991, mm-hmm. and um, this, this was a, an idea sort of floated out there, which is now long since gone, that memory RNA would be a thing. And I'm thinking this episode is set 400 years in the future. It's sort of like us going back to the, say, phlogiston theory of how things burn. Uh, so that that's definitely not a thing, and probably not a thing we would go back to. But I totally get Jordy's bad memory. I really understand that. And every time, I swear, every time I watched this scene, mm-hmm. I would try to remember what I did on my last birthday. <laughs> and finally, finally, I gave up, and I had to go to Facebook to look it up.
2: It was not until we were having this conversation Mm -hmm. that I remembered what I did on my last birthday. But I didn't go to Facebook to check. Well, but it turns out I wouldn't have actually posted on Facebook what I did anyway. I I bought a couple of old movies and then uh, sat and watched them while
0: sipping uh, bourbon. It's totally cool. Yeah. I think that's uh, a good thing. Pretty much my
2: fallback, though. I mean, if you ask me, you know, what did you do on your 35th birthday? I got drunk. What did you do on your 37th birthday? Hmm, funny story.
0: Yeah.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Seems possible that I was out drinking with people. I don't know.
0: Yeah. Um, We have a great scene between Dr. Crusher and Picard in the dining room. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So much of what was not said was great. And I kind of wondered how much of that was editing. Um, I can't remember who I was talking to that said, you know, uh, film is a director's medium but TV is the editor's medium. Hmm. And I thought that was really great because you're really, as a director, you're trying to knock through this in such short time and just stick to the schedule. So really what is made of it happens in the editing room. And um, that was, the timing on that was so perfect. And just to see Picard's eyes dart back and forth between Crusher and Tarman uh, in response to her prodding was so good yeah it was so good um another nice scene uh was riker talking to Deanna while in her coma but it really played sweetly it was really uh, a nice scene
2: it did play very sweetly and also it was a good chance for him to give a shout out to one of the most hated episodes of tng Uh, shades of Grey, which, of course, saw yeah. the inglorious exit or, you know, lame exit. I don't know if I'm using inglorious correctly. I don't even know if that's a word, honestly. So let's say the lame exit of uh, <laughs> of Dynamo Dower, Of course, Catherine yeah. Pulaski, last time you see her, is in like this right. total like phoned in episode of Next Gen. Uh, for people who don't remember, by the way, that's the one where Riker was in a coma and Troy stood there talking to him. Yeah. It's a clip so, show.
0: Yeah. <laughs> So you should know from experience if he could hear her or not. <laughs> That's or true. if she could hear him or not. I
2: remembered yeah. how great it was when people told me later you had been standing there talking to me, so I figured I had to put in <laughs> at least five minutes so somebody might tell you, because maybe that'd make you feel better once you're awake. Uh, the right. Case of the Comatose Counselor, by the way, mm-hmm. uh, quite possibly the best Dixon Hill novel. Oh, if you're looking to get yeah. started, yeah. Uh, that is a good one. Uh, look for it wherever made-up paperbacks are sold.
0: Mm-hmm. Good yeah. call. Uh, it was very interesting to see a young Ted Cruz in the engineering disaster <laughs> flashback scene. I, you
2: know, I so thought the same thing. I I, yeah. I I got bummed because then I got sidetracked on him like saying, oh, yeah, I think, you know, when he made his political pronouncements about uh, which party Kirk would be in. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I actually had to pause and go back because I was like, oh, yeah, that happened.
0: Yeah, right. Well, yeah, it was well before his career in politics took off. And and, and actually, actually, all right, uh, that is Craig Benton as Crewman Davis. Uh, but funny enough, there is another actor in that scene, an extra doesn't have as many lines as, uh, you know, Ensign Ted Cruz does here. But There is another actor in that scene running in the background who is tony cruise really mm, yeah mm. so i might be on to something
2: interesting yeah. hey i had a question by the way does the yeah. keller thing have we ever heard that story before was that an episode of star trek that i've forgotten or is this just like oh yeah this is a thing that no. happened to will one time
0: Right, no, we haven't heard it. Um, okay. I'm sure that there's a novel somewhere, like a dense 400 page novel somewhere, that is all about the <laughs> Keller incident.
2: Yeah, probably so, because we know. Because here's the thing: I mean, not yeah. to not to be too much of a geek, but right. we know this has to have happened sometime between season two and now, because he's got the beard. He's got the beard, and Geordie's yep. there, so we know it happened on the Enterprise as well. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, I thought I actually thought about going back and looking. To see whether it was something i had forgotten then i realized there's so much stuff i've forgotten am i really going to spend time <laughs> hunting this one up
0: <laughs> right right um oh by the way another thing just to update the science on the show because i, I mentioned the memory rna thing so uh, uh it's Worf, uh dr crusher and picard and they're talking about Kind of doing the detective work to figure out what 's happening and what has happened to the people who are in comas, mm-hmm. and uh, Dr. Crusher says well i 'm um, finding this residual effect in their brains. Um, she mentions the thalamus mm-hmm. and and i, I it didn 't sound right to me, so I did a little more digging around the thalamus is is actually kind of a relay in the brain so it's responsible for things like sleep and wakefulness like regulating consciousness when are you going to be conscious and when will you not like when you're sleeping <laughs> the hippocampus is actually more associated with memory so specifically the transition of short term to long term memory and from there you go to the left anterior prefrontal cortex I don't know why Dr. Crusher is more interested in the thalamus but she's a doctor so who am I to argue with that yeah <laughs> <laughs> sorry uh-huh.
2: Yeah. Uh, Forgive me. I got caught up on how much you sounded like my dad for part of that. When are you going to be conscious? When are you not? (laughs) Seriously? I love the fact that you got caught in which part of the brain she got caught in. That's, yeah. Yeah. Props to you, my friend. Props to you. Just
0: for a moment. But by the way, Dr. Crusher does, I I believe, when she's examining Keiko, uh, she does read Keiko's CPK levels. Uh, That would be creatine phosphokinase. Uh, It's an enzyme found in blood, and it can relate to stress or trauma in the circulatory system or in the brain has nothing to do with a west coast pizza restaurant i'll just uh, make sure that that is very clear
2: didn't seem worth mentioning in the recap but i do like the process of elimination thinking that geordie does with the computer Mm -hmm. because you know so often it's like hey computer um, what's the the answer that will solve this whole thing and you know the computer is like oh it's this right and you're done Right, right he did like some really like you know some hardcore like you know it's not quite if this, then that thinking, but like some process of elimination work that was really kind of cool. Um, mm-hmm. So on the one hand, it was neat to see him actually using the computer as a tool as opposed to the writers using the computer as a crutch. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, it's two minutes of my times however many times I watched this episode that I'm never going to get back. Like as far as advancing the plot, yes, it right. doesn't, but it was, it was still kind of neat, especially the first time, like watching him do the detective work third or fourth time (laughs) i was a tiny bit over it but it didn't feel like it was worth fast forwarding because you know then you overshoot it and then by the time you get back you could have just sat there through the whole thing um same thing goes for Jordy's realization that it may not be unexplained comas they need to look at along the union's route he was he was uh, matlock barry mason uh, jessica fletcher you know your favorite TV detective in this one. I know Perry yeah, Mason Batman, wasn't. Yeah. Perry Mason was not a detective. Batman, sure. Mm-hmm, yeah. Um, Perry Mason wasn't a detective, but he often acted as a detective. It seemed. Um, come to think of it, yeah. Matlock wasn't a detective either, and yet right. he still acted as a detective. Hmm. Yes, I've only named one. And come to think of it, Jessica Fletcher was a writer.
0: Uh, let's let's go with Batman and Columbo. Uh, let's go with uh, Columbo, or,
2: or you know, uh, David Addison. We could do that one too.
0: Okay. Oh, good. Yeah. He, he was a good character point. on a
2: show called um, called Moonlighting. By the way, I don't know oh, if anybody's oh, oh, heard of you. that. Yeah.
0: Oh, that's good. Well, there are, we'll there ought to be a podcast. <laughs> yeah. Right. Uh, I do admire Picard's extremely diplomatic way of handling the Ulians when discussing confining them to their quarters. They, they have every reason <laughs> to sort of ask why. And he has every reason to say, well, we're, we're just really trying to get to the we're, we're not saying, but I'm kind of OK, just please cooperate. <laughs> yeah.
2: Except, of course, Tarman walked out after that. Mm-hmm,
0: right. Yeah. Right.
2: So yeah. maybe a little too diplomatic about it.
0: Could be, could be. <laughs> um, and then Picard does say at the end, uh, he, he says, I, I'm not sure we have any legal basis for prosecution. And I thought, well, this is kind of like when we encountered Kevin Oxbridge in Survivors. It's like, okay, well, you at some point in the past wiped an entire species out of existence, just completely removed them out of history. Mm-hmm. We don't really know what to do with that, Um, (laughs) you know? Right. So fortunately, there are laws uh, back at Tarman's planet to deal with that. Um, And I also will say that it was really nice to see Deanna beating up Jev. Mm -hmm. That's a moment you're just sort of waiting for in the show. And I really wish they had just let her finish the job.
2: Yeah. so, So when security comes in, I will say I like the fact that there was like one male and one female security officer. But it would have mm-hmm. absolutely been fine if security had shown up and there's Deanna standing over, mm-hmm. standing over Jev, having, yeah. as you say, having, having finished the job. That would have been a yeah. neat thing to say. And without a flower pot in sight.
0: Right. Yes. Yeah. Exactly. Would have been especially
2: amazing. Uh, good to see Pippi Longstocking alive and, well, alive in the 24th century. <laughs> uh, it's great that she's getting work. It's totally awesome. Yeah. And yeah. also, uh, I don't know if you noticed this, name check for us no I didn't yeah Jordy says they are checking the mission logs and I thought okay well he got the name wrong but Mm -hmm. maybe he meant all of our episodes And, and I will say it's just it's so great to be remembered
1: you know what is fun to talk about not this episode
0: So I foreshadowed a little bit talking about something that I thought that was really cool with the Yulians are doing. And um, I, I have to say, I can't remember the first time I heard the term oral history as a separate thing from just history. Mm-hmm. But I, I want to say it was relatively recently, like within the last, say, 10 to 15 years. Um, and I, I think... Probably when I was in the school, probably when you were in school, history was just a thing you got from books. And if you were lucky and the teacher was maybe having a bad day, it was a documentary film and mm-hmm. it sort of let it run. Um, but more and more in the last, like I said, maybe 10 years, maybe a little bit more, uh, you hear the term oral history used. And it makes so much sense. And I think it's quite wonderful that everyone has a story to tell no matter what they've done in life, no matter what their profession or position. And I just love the idea of a whole culture dedicated to preserving other cultures through the use of oral history. That is really fascinating to me, that 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 is how they will experience and preserve other people's experience. We should all be doing that. Um, and, And maybe in a weird way we are. I know I have no problem with the idea that people use their ubiquitous mobile phone cameras to capture things like vacations and great meals. And, and for me, in my case, trying to remember what I did on my birthday, <laughs> um, you know, but I would hope that at some point we also turn the cameras around on the people and our families and our friends and our work lives and our social lives um, and, and anyone else willing to share their story. Um, I actually remember uh, this was several years ago, um, My grandmother had some surgery, and when she was uh, recovering from that, the the whole family was visiting, and my grandfather was there, and my grandfather, who's no longer with us, and I had a video camera with me, and and I was shooting all kinds of stuff just because it was a nice opportunity to go back home, Mm -hmm. but I just sort of set the camera down and turned it on and, and let them talk for a while, and it was not about anything important. But it was really cool because I just sort of got their patter and and their voices captured for a moment. So it was kind of a, a nice thing to have. And I, I like the fact that I have that tape.
2: That is a really neat thing. I will say there is a... Um, so I guess it was it was relatively recently in my family's past where we found out about um, some Cherokee lineage about which we didn't know. And I know that becomes kind of like a joke because so many people... So many people claim to be you know, part Cherokee or say that they are part Cherokee, especially from the, the a part of the world where you and I are from once you and I hail. But, um, yeah, it was just it, nobody knew about this woman in our in our family history. And it was seriously just like an older relative telling a story to a younger relative one time who said, oh, and of course, blah, blah, blah. And, you know, she said, of course, because it was part of what she knew. But I don't know whether it was shame. I don't know whether it was. I don't know what it was. And again, I don't. I don't know a lot about my family, unfortunately. Maybe I should you know, listen to my dad's stories sometime when he wants to tell them. <laughs> but it was seriously just. It was just talking because I mean, we, we there are so many like little pieces of paper and scraps of things that either, you know, are, are maybe pressed in the family Bible someplace that's like in another family member's house or that's in like you know court some someplace. I mean, it's. I, I found it interesting actually what you were saying about you know history versus oral history, because, I mean, Mm -hmm. the historical parts of it are pieces of paper that we sort of, you know, start to ignore relatively quickly. Right, right. But if you actually stop and listen to people, uh, you know, tell their stories, you'll find out a lot more about them. And yet that's, you know, the kind of thing that's not necessarily taken as seriously on some level, because it doesn't document. I mean, it documents perception in a way. Yeah. But I mean, it it does also record parts of history that that people don't, you know, as you say, set up the camera to record or, or write down. Exactly, who was sitting at dinner that one time that this one thing happened, and yet yeah. uh, those those stories um, uh, certainly provide a lot of a lot of uh, uh, flavor, nuance, color to yeah. to um, to the dry facts. Maybe
0: um, no, I, I will, I think, come back to a thing that I think is kind of uh, a negative here that is a weird thing. About what they're doing, but we'll we'll assume uh, positive intent here for the the beginning of that discussion. Now let's also talk about. Uh, <laughs> Wait, you don't want to go
2: ahead and do it now because it's a natural segue. I mean,
0: uh, well, I, I guess we could. Yeah, I, I mean, the the thing that. Really, and believe me, we're we're building up here to what is the the ultimate point, the ultimate driving uh, uh, sort of topic in this episode. But the other thing that I thought about, and really right from the beginning, watching uh, Keiko in that scene uh, develop her memory, because as we've discussed before, you know, memory is a process; it is not a thing. Despite what data may believe, where you just sort of dig in and say, "Oh yeah, I want that memory now." Memory is a process of building that back into your narrative, you know? So when I think right now about something that happened 20 years ago, I am rebuilding those memories. I am, I'm forming a new narrative of what I think those memories are. So what I thought about in watching this, in Keiko, let's say she's in her early 30s remembering something that happened when she was, you know, five, mm-hmm. let's just to put a number on it. Um, I got really concerned about the idea of false memory. Um, this is something that I thought of, uh, well, w- with Tarman first, and certainly with Jev, uh, as he is imposing himself into other people's memories. We saw a good deal of this idea, maybe, you know, more than 20 years ago or so. But the idea of it still hangs around for some reason Um Remember on an episode of Mission Log when we talked about satanic panic? Mm -hmm. That whole thing was driven by false memory. The idea that there were therapists who would use this, um, you know, repressed memory therapy to try to draw something out of someone to remember something that happened in their distant childhood. And they would start to make up stories not because they were trying to fake it, but because they were conflating and confusing things from real life with maybe fantasy or a dream or something that they had read. So fortunately, this sort of fell out of favor and and this uh, repressed memory therapy stopped being a thing that was as prominent. But the idea kind of hangs around mm-hmm. Um It is extraordinarily easy to manipulate someone's memories, extraordinarily easy, Mm -hmm. and that's kind of what's going on here. Um, Even when you have somebody asking, well, what's there? Do you see this? Pick up the handle that's in the cup. What do you see? All of those could actually be reforming memories rather than getting to the truth of the matter. Um, so when we started the episode, I started to get that kind of creepy feeling that this was guided by Tarman to bring this out of Keiko. Not, not that there was anything weird about that memory. Right. Um, not that there was anything nefarious about what he was doing. But there is an extremely fine line because it's so easy to mess with someone's psyche and mess with what they think they remembered. right.
2: There's, and there's like, yes, sorry, there were a couple of things I thought about there. I mean, certainly that's provable when Jev does what Jev does in the interrogation with Deanna. Yeah. When he, I mean, he imposes a memory. That's not even guiding. That's absolutely imposing. No. And it's interesting me right. the that they're going to build a museum based on people's memories, but our memories are fallible.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And so, yeah, kind of odd that that's going to be your history. At the same, so I I also couldn't help and and this is going to seem sort of far afield I guess but you know stick with me because it's always fun. Mm-hmm. Um, I couldn't help think about the Enola Gay controversy uh, with the Smithsonian. Do you remember this?
0: Do you no, know I what don't. I'm I, talking I, about? I, I, I know what the Anole Gay is, but yeah. I I don't know about the controversy with the Smithsonian. Okay, no.
2: yeah. So for the 50th anniversary, or the or f- uh, commemorating the 50th anniversary of the dropping of the uh, of the. uh atomic bombs in mm-hmm. Hiroshima and Nagasaki, uh, there were people who said, you know, we should maybe talk about sort of the downside on this whole thing as well, mm-hmm. like how many people were killed, how there has been controversy about whether or not the bomb should have even been dropped in the first place. And, mm-hmm. and basically, there were a number of organizations that said, no, we're not going to talk about that. When this goes into this history museum, when this goes into the National Air and Space Museum, we're, we're going to talk about the fact that this happened and it ended the war and it saved lives. Um, and, and, and I just came across a quote, actually, from the Lehigh University uh, website. Uh, do you want an exhibit to make veterans feel good, or do you want an exhibit that will lead our visitors to think about the consequences of the atomic bombing of Japan? Frankly, I don't think we can do both. Uh, that's what the curator of the National Air and Space wow. Museum said at the time. Wow. Yeah, and guess what? You don't remember that story.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Right.
2: Yeah. <laughs> and the story that was told at the museum, and then it was apparently retold when the Enola Gay was moved. I mean, the controversy was, OK, how do we want to remember this? So, I mean, even when you're looking at the dry you know, facts of it, I mean, when people started talking about it, the question then becomes, OK, is this going to become a celebration or a consideration? And the mm-hmm. story that ended up winning, actually, was the story that was it uh, was more popular in a way. So I mean I'm not I, they're not a direct correlation, but I did find it interesting. It's like you're going to build a museum of memories, and that's going to be our that's going to be what we're going to say history is. Right. Oh, okay. Right. And yeah. and how you choose to remember that, or how you want to remember that, and then of course the other thing is are these guys who are probing these memories, are they actually only probing the memories, or do they come across one and go mm, that's not important? Let's actually focus on this, or oh, let's not even talk about that because uh, that's unsavory. Wow. There was right. another. There was another thing I wondered about as well. Mm-hmm. Why is it bad memories? And 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 let me back up. Jeff yeah. is Jev is a race a rapist. Sorry to say, racist. Yeah, they're both bad. But yeah. Jeff is a rapist. <laughs> right. um, no memory he creates in Deanna's head is is going to end well. But when he hits Riker and he hits Crusher, he doesn't leave them in like a like a happy moment. Like, did you see the the kids in the whole movie Brain Candy? Oh, yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. G- Gleamanex was, yeah. <laughs> was the name of the drug. Yeah. And what it did was it would like, put you in the happiest memory you've ever had mm-hmm. and just sort of drop you there. It would leave you uh, suspended in a state of bliss. Um, he doesn't take them to some happy place that they can, that they can you know, sleep soundly. He takes them you know to a place where they were nearly broken, and then he breaks them. Yeah. And what I was wondering is, is that a writer thing where it's easier to show pain or are we saying that the bad memories will always hold greater sway than the happy ones?
0: I don't know if we're necessarily saying that. I mean, it, we start to get to that point when Data and Geordi are having their conversation. Um, and, and there is some truth to that, that the more neurons that fire during a memory, during the creation of a memory, um, the more likelihood that it will be remembered. So the, the more stimulus is there, the more traumatic... Or at least the more important the moment, the better it will be remembered. Um, but, <laughs> but I think this is more indicative of the character of Jev. Because remember, it's his father who we, we get to that point. Actually, I'm sorry, it is Jev himself who, trying to cover his tracks, is describing this to Picard saying, oh, well, we don't know why this would happen. Maybe it is a perverse sense of pleasure uh, or a way to exercise control over another. I think this goes back to just simply the rape metaphor that this whole thing is. Hmm. Where, you know, time and time again, and, and hopefully we all know it, but it's still worth repeating to say that Conventionally, our conventional understanding of rape as a crime is that it is not about sex; it is about violence. It is about exercising power through violence over another person. So I get it that that's how Jev expresses himself in these situations where he is mining other people's memories. He's going for those moments that are traumatic and difficult, and imposing him within that. He, he is taking, as he describes later to Picard but circuitously getting pleasure from that, a perverse sense of pleasure from that.
2: Forgive me for asking, do you think he actually got that pleasure from what happened with Riker and Crusher? Because I I thought that he, I mean, he definitely got the pleasure or whatever. I mean, he's sick. Mm-hmm. He's, he's twisted and not justifying anything he's done any part of this episode at all. Although right. we're going to talk later and it's going to sound like I am and I'm not, but whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, what he did with with Troy was absolutely reprehensible. Yeah. What what he did with Riker and Crusher was also reprehensible, but that was to get them out of the way, right? Mm-hmm. This is sort of like oh, I killed somebody, but two other people found out, so now I got to kill them. Why'd you kill the first person? Well, because ah, wow, I, you know, right? Why'd you right, kill the other right. two? Well, because they were going to find out. Yeah, I mean, is he? I guess that's that's sort of why I'm differentiating those things because. He has to he has to debilitate Riker and Crusher if he's gonna continue his life of crime. Or actually if he's gonna continue his life. Yeah. And the easiest way to do that is apparently to take them to the breaking point, or do you think or do you think he's just a guy, well I love my work. <laughs> like I, mean, I had to do this terrible thing, so I might as well enjoy it.
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, I I think it could easily be both. But I mean, I I think that he is a in this case, he is a serial rapist. And this is something he has done in other places. So regardless of it's just covering his tracks, Mm. I I do believe that he's getting he's getting some, if not pleasure, some satisfaction from it. Yeah, you know, this is who he is. And this is what he does. This is his way of expressing whether it's that power or control we can talk about that you know father and son relationship where here's a guy who's been put down all his life regardless of that it doesn't justify his actions um but he is clearly acting out in a way that imposes power over other people Mm -hmm. so um yeah god uh, what a I don't know how much further to go to just say that this is a twisted, sick individual. It's one of the darker characters we've had on Star Trek because yeah. it is so invasive and personal. It's not sort of like Khan where it's just this outside force. And as long as you kill the outside force, then you're going to be okay. Right. <laughs> you know, this is something that is much more intimate and, and presumably would have much uh, longer and deeper lasting effects on the people who are, are hurt by this
2: you uh you touched on it a moment ago can we talk about um can we talk about tarman's bad parenting
0: sure All right. yeah
2: um you know so he sits there and says oh son i probe the minds of pretty ladies even without permission mm. you know how i am yeah you're nowhere near as good as i am at the things that you know only we can do they're they're like there are very few people even on our planet of people who might be able to do this who can do this well and so you're good enough to play in the bigs but you're always going to be a relief pitcher. I'm the guy. Yeah, right. I guess, I guess the question that I had when we got to the end of this episode is where is the part where anyone else has any part in what Jeb has become? And again, I am absolutely not saying it's not Jeb's fault. It is absolutely Jeb's fault. Yeah. It is way Jeb's fault. He should have recognized these issues or urges in himself and said something or done something. Talk to somebody. Taking himself out of the mind pro business. I mean, there are all sorts of things that he should have done mm-hmm. to keep himself from doing what he is doing wrong. But these behaviors do seem to have been affected and in a way modeled by Tarman, I think. I mean, yeah, no, do you, I
1: agree. What I do you agree. say?
2: He's not raping Dr. Crusher in the prologue. He's just, you know, rubbing up against her on a train, which is still assault. Mm-hmm. What he is doing to her is absolute assault. And she laughs it off. He's like, his son is like, uh, you can't do that. And he's like, oh, but come on, she's pretty. Yeah. And she's like, oh, I am. I mean, it's, I mean, and that's, that, where is any, where is sort of anybody else's culpability in this? It is Jeb's fault. Mm -hmm. It is Jeb's fault. But where is like, where's the humanity? I mean, this kid has apparently been browbeaten all the way through. And then we get to the end of it and nobody says, so anybody want to look at why this happened? No. Right. No.
0: No. No, just call the authorities. Maybe
2: in another episode we'll do that. Or or in the 400-page novel we we could talk about (laughs) all the stuff that led up to that moment.
0: So there's something that uh, that is sort of related here, but it's an interesting undercurrent to what's going on. Okay. All right. Uh, and we've talked about this before on our show, how that every now and then Star Trek is giving you these little hints of its attitude on sexuality in the 24th century. hmm Now, judging by this, and I go back to a light and fun scene, like Dr. Crusher sort of teasing Picard about his memories. (laughs) Right. We don't know what might be stored in those memories, you know? Right. Right. Now, at the beginning, as wrong as it is for Tarman to, you know, uninvited uh, start to read a bit of Crusher's mind, Mm -hmm. there's this hint of what Crusher is thinking about. What Crusher is thinking about her first kiss. Well, that's a lovely memory. That, mm-hmm. that that's nice but we sort of continue to have that idea of what is on crusher's mind by the time we get to her sitting across a table from captain picard who may or may not have shared a kiss with her at some point in their past the one scene that i'm gosh i'm really conflicted about here mm-hmm. i'm not sure what we're supposed to make of the troy and Riker scene in flashback mm they are a couple of adults who work together but they also fraternize mm-hmm. it was no problem at all when they beamed down to beta Z and oh look we're on this nice garden planet and your mother's not around time to go in for the kiss right okay still on the clock by the way i mean well there <laughs> <laughs> you know <laughs> right um, And even before that, Riker admits that he wouldn't want to share any of his memories with an audience, okay? Mm -hmm. The thing that really concerned me here is we, we, we keep filling in a little bit about the sexuality of the characters on this show and maybe these relaxed attitudes about what sexuality is in the 24th century. But I get really concerned when I start to parse at what point Deanna's memory of Riker stops and at what point Jev's imposition begins because everything that has happened in the other two or everything that will happen in the other two memories um, we have the explosion in engineering and we have the death of Jack Crusher well not the death of Jack Crusher but the corpse of Jack Crusher that uh, that Beverly has to visit Okay right So he's stepping into these scenes, and I'm going to assume that he hasn't changed the conditions around the engineering mishap. He's simply experiencing it and trying to get into Riker's mind about what was happening when he made a decision that resulted in the loss of a crewman.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: When he's in the morgue, Yes, Jack Crusher did not wake up and start talking to Beverly, but what he's doing is he's getting in the moment that is a deeply painful memory for Dr. Crusher. Mm-hmm. What is he trying to get out of the moment with Riker and Deanna? Because every time we come back to that moment, Deanna's is saying no. He's trying to get to a level of intimacy, it
2: seems. Um, although, again... There are plenty of intimate moments that they shared. You're right. He could have just imposed himself on the memory down on Beta Z. Mm-hmm. Except, of course, they actually didn't get that far because Mr. Ohm and um and uh Waxana. Yeah. Hom and Waxana came in, right. Mm-hmm. I mean, but there have to be plenty of shared memory. They've got green memories, I would say. Sure. Any one of which he could actually be sure. a part of. Yeah. What he wants to do is upset and control and what have you. Um, well, what he wants to do is rape her. I'm thinking. Uh, it, as soon as it starts to go south is when it becomes Jev. And the only reason I think that is because when she remembers, oh, I'm cleaning up after a poker game with Riker, she says it's a pleasant memory. And she smiles. Yep. And she smiles. Yep. And so I don't think, like, if that had if that had ended anything like, I mean, even if it ended with, like, him trying to impose himself on her and her slapping him, I don't think that she would start that memory by saying, oh, it's a good memory. I think she would start that memory by saying, eh. Nah, yeah. Or worse. And so I got to think that basically the second it goes anywhere but pleasant is is where we're seeing Jev uh, uh, sort of take control.
0: Yeah. And I had to keep telling myself that and trying to figure out where that moment happened, simply because we see Riker in the flashback. Originally, we see Riker as she's saying, kind of like, no, we work together. Yeah. Not, not, not why we're working together. And... Under any other circumstance, you're hoping that Riker, being the stand-up guy and professional that he is, you might say, y- "Okay, I-, I get it." Right. Even though they've had other green memories, and even though they have, uh, you know, snuck a kiss, which mm-hmm. might have led to more on Beta Zed, um, you would hope that he would say, "Oh, yeah, you're absolutely right." And then that's the end of the memory. Um, but even then, it seems like a very odd choice. For that to be where um, Jev sticks his nose in, where it shouldn't be.
2: Well, as you said earlier, I mean, if what he wants is is the is the display of power and the display of violence, then he's not going to go for one of the nicer memories.
0: No, no, but he, he's getting emotionally intense moments when he yes. simply inserts himself into those other memories. Doctor Crusher's memory was already intense. Riker's memory was already intense. Well, that's why I asked the question yeah. earlier
2: about you know why is he choosing the memories? He's choosing good versus bad things like that. I mean, he perverting the good memory uh, seems to be where he gets his thrill in this episode. Yeah, the other yeah. two, he's the other two. He just has to get out of the way, and it's an un, it's an unseemly thing, and it's something he shouldn't be doing, and it's completely illegal, and it's still a violation. But it's just about breaking them so that they don't catch him,
0: mm-hmm.
2: right? Mm-hmm. He's, I mean, yeah, he's. <laughs> I hate I hate how this sounds. Those are those are killings that had to happen, not killings that he wanted to happen.
0: Right. I mean right, if, right, if you yeah. want to make this yeah. murder
2: instead yeah. of rape, yeah. I mean it's you you killed the first person because you hated that person, or you killed the first person because you loved that person, or you killed the first person because you never killed anybody that way and you always wanted to try. The other two people then heard about it, and so you had to kill them, but that was just that was just work. That was just getting them out of the way. Right. So you take Crusher to a place that she nearly broke and go ahead and break her. You take Riker to a place that he nearly broke. It's interesting to me, actually, because he's usually so... Not fine, but he's fine. I mean, he understands the needs of the many, outweigh the needs of the few, or the one. He lost Ensign Keller. He saved the rest of engineering. But what's killing him, or what's hurting him, or what takes him to that breaking point is the time he lost that one person he couldn't get back. That's actually an interesting character moment for Riker. Yeah. But I don't, I, don't know that, I don't know that Jev is taking any pleasure in what happens with either of those two characters. I think he just has to get them out of the way because they're right on his heels.
1: Time now to put an end to Violations.
0: All right, Ken, coming to the wrap-up of a very intense, uh, very dense episode here, Violations. And uh, we now try to figure out what we make of it, what holds up, what doesn't, and what the messages might be. So, Ken, Violations, does the episode hold up?
2: It's, it, I think I've done this on one or two episodes before. I want to pause just for a moment and say, um, thankfully, this is not anything that I have a personal experience with. And yeah. if there's anything that either of us said that sounded flip, I'm sorry to apologize for you. If there's anything I said that sounded flip or dismissive or like I was being an apologist for uh, the rapist in this episode, um, certainly not my intent. We come from where we come and 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 try our best to be. I mean, yeah, you, as you said, segment two, we have a little fun, but we're not trying to be flip or dismissive in anything on this. And I just want to make sure that's clear. Um, as far as does this episode hold up, uh, I would say it's a very harrowing episode. Uh, well acted, well directed, well shot, well edited, as you say. They mm. do, in those nightmare scenes, they do some really amazing camera stuff, especially the one that you were talking about with the, um, uh, in, the in the morgue. Yeah. They w- When they come in, and instead of going down to where Jack Crusher is laid out, they actually go into a sort of an area that sort of overlooks where he's laid out, and then go over the rail and down to it. Right. There's, I've said this before, there's so little interesting camera work that happens on television that when you see interesting camera work on television, it's like watching Citizen Kane. <laughs> and so <laughs> right. that's, that's kind of amazing. From a production standpoint, uh, I would absolutely say this episode holds up. Um, it is also hard to do an episode like this on such a difficult topic without raising a number of questions if you're going to do it well. And I think they did it well to a point. Um, it's got a lot of great marks going for it. I am bombed it didn't go deeper into the whys of Jev's more reprehensible behavior. Yeah, I'm not saying his father is to blame for what he's done, but his father doesn't even question how he's treated Jev all the way through. Mm-hmm. And And then when they get to the end, nobody says... <laughs> Wow. How did something like this happen? You know what I mean? Yeah. Now, I got to say, and we didn't talk about it last segment, um, Picard does address it in sort of a grander sense. You have to have loved the Taste of Armageddon speech.
0: Oh, absolutely. Yeah. At the
2: end. And and forgive me, I think I'm actually uh, sort of uh, seeping into the messages part of it. So why don't we not do that yet? OK, uh, what about you? Does the episode hold up as far as you're concerned?
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I agree with everything you said. It, it is well written. It is well performed. Um, it breaks out of that usual Star Trek mold a bit by having these really artistic flashbacks um, show something a little bit different than we normally get on the show. Um, I liked it on repeat viewing. Mm-hmm. by being able liked, to... Fo-
2: liked is a weird term, I'm, I'm assuming.
0: Well, yeah, I, 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 let me put it this way. I like the performances mm-hmm. on repeat viewing um, because I found that there was so much more to watch the actors do, even yeah. when it wasn't their scene, when it wasn't their dialogue. Um, there are moments that, uh, like you, I felt like Geordi uh, doing the detective work on the computer was interesting once. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> you know um, but it's not a great scene it, it is an interesting scene the first time you watch it. Um, yeah.
2: it's, it it's also good to see it I mean again most people aren't sitting there watching it three or four times in a row I mean right. it is, right. it is right. good to see it lazier writing would have been to not watch them do that detective work. And so then, you know, they just come in at the end. Well, how did you know? Ah, funny story. We figured out because of this and this and this. It was actually good to watch them do the process of elimination. Right, right. Uh, Maybe it's not worth watching (laughs) four or five times consecutively.
0: (laughs) Yeah, no, but I I agree. I mean, uh, for all of those reasons, it works as an episode. It it is well written. It is well acted. It is an interesting episode it is a dark and heavy episode with a lot to unpack after you see it. Mm-hmm. Um, so for that, you know, if you're recommending it to someone, you have to recommend it for the right reasons. Um, it, this isn't just sort of light entertainment. Um, and it, certainly helps to have a little background with the characters before going into this, knowing mm-hmm. who's who on the Enterprise and their relationships to each other.
2: Knowing what Imzadi means. Knowing oh.
0: what Imzadi means, sure, sure. Um, but it does work, and I do think it holds up. So now we get to talk about an even more difficult part. <laughs> so what are the messages here that, uh, that we picked up?
2: Well, I mean, uh, when I referenced the the Taste of Armageddon speech earlier, that was the one for people who don't remember where Kirk stood. uh, These two warring factions are, are not even killing each other anymore. They're killing themselves because they have computer simulations figuring out, okay, well, if we were at war, how many people would die and where would they live? Okay, it would be this many and they'd live here. So everybody into the suicide machine because it's your time. Yeah and and uh, Kirk basically makes the speech that um, you know you don't just kill yourself because you're killers you you choose not to kill uh, i can't remember you actually do the speech all the time but basically <laughs> I, I i choose not to kill on this day Picard basically gives the same speech i mean when they're talking about um, uh Jeb's reprehensible uh behavior and activity i can't remember now what is exact Well, i think i actually did it in the recap didn't i mm. He basically says yeah, we ha- we have to be aware. Earth used to be violent too, uh, but we found ways to deal. Uh, but the seed um, the seed for such violence remains in each of us. We must recognize that because that violence is capable of consuming each of us, as it consumed your son. That's basically the same as Kirk saying, "Yeah, we're savages, we're killers, but but we choose not to be, and we have to keep choosing not to be. Otherwise, we are."
0: I I agree with you to. A, a tremendous degree. I, I agree with ninety nine percent of what you're saying, and, and you're speaking my language because I love that speech from A Taste of Armageddon. I think it says. I know so much. you do. <laughs> I think it says so much about Star Trek's overall view of humanity and what the message is for humanity. Mm-hmm. I part ways with it in this episode for one reason only. Okay, there's something wrong with Jev. Yes, and and that's where the the parallel isn't quite there. It's one thing for Picard to say, like Kirk, oh, well, will we recognize that these things are problems and us, and and we choose to not do that thing. We choose to not be that person. And like Kirk, we choose not to be violent. Mm -hmm. There's something really wrong with Jev. And it's not simply a matter of saying, you know, Jev, you have these abilities, and you are abusing people by using those abilities. You have to choose to not do that.
2: Well, no, I don't think it's saying that once he's actually done it. I think it's saying Mm. it ahead of time, right? I mean, it's it's interesting because Kirk is talking about being a killer and you're Mm. saying there's something wrong with Jev. I would say if you're out there killing, there's something wrong with you as well. I mean, of course, of course. (laughs) So, I mean, I'm not I mean, I I I get what you're saying, but I don't I don't think anybody's saying, oh, okay, now, Jev, now you need to stop. I mean, he's he's going to go meet some sort of punishment that we're given to understand is incredibly harsh. And, and may I just say, props, good, mm-hmm. I'm mm-hmm. glad, that's yeah. that's wonderful. I kind of wish we knew what it was, because I want to make sure it's harsh enough. Right. <laughs> and that's,
0: just gonna let Deanna keep beating him up.
2: Yeah, yeah I'd be okay with that, you know, yeah. for a while, until mm-hmm. she gets tired, and then let Worf take over. Mm-hmm. I'd be okay with that, too. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I, I get what you're saying. Yes, there's something wrong with Jev, but, I mean, that's... It seems to me that especially as we go more into the character-driven stuff than into the sort of, you know, grander morality tale stuff, it seems to me that one of the constant messages – we had somebody say it to us the last time we were in Vegas. You constantly have to be vigilant, I guess. And that seems mm. to be what Kirk was saying in that speech. It seems to be what Picard is saying in this speech. I think I mentioned before to me where it falls apart is nobody's, nobody's even asking the question of why. And and that that might be a thing to, I mean, unless we're going to go with just, oh, well, he's just sick. I don't think it is just that, though, because we saw his father, you know, debilitate him. Uh, m- many times in, in this short episode, we saw his father be condescending and, and awful to him.
0: Well, and, and in that respect, then, the the value of what Picard is saying is not really about Jev. Then the mm-hmm. value in what Picard is saying is really about Tarman, to say that, You know, you guys are not out of the woods as far as eradicating these terrible impulses that you think you have gotten rid of. And Mm. maybe it is partly your fault that this wasn't identified and dealt with in a better way early on. Um, So maybe there is some some truth within that in, in terms of where where Picard's line should be directed. I mean, I I do have to say, you know, going back to this thing about uh, about the father and uh, about Tarman's level of uh, responsibility. Again, not to Mm -hmm. take anything away from Jev, because Jev does need to be punished intensely. Um, I, I was so glad to see the word rape used in this show, because even though we're in this sort of weird science fiction metaphor that's still what's going on here. And, and mm-hmm. they are going to make sure that you get it as an audience to say, this is what we're talking about. Um, I kept thinking, you know, here it is as of our recording, again, early 21st century. And we still have a problem with a justice system, at least recently in the U.S., in which the crime of rape is sometimes just downplayed mm-hmm. and and maybe punishment would maybe not be seen as severe enough a- and it's infuriating um and there are cases where uh a a father has maybe lobbied a judge to say well we'll go easy on my son because you're going
2: to ruin his future
0: yeah yeah so that's still a thing that 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 is a thing that has happened in recent history as of the recording of this program um so the the relevance of of watching the show is certainly not lost and and the relevance of sort of the the overall responsibility not stopping with the person who is guilty here because mm-hmm. jeff is clearly guilty jeff clearly needs to be punished but at the very least there should be some questions raised about the rest of the environment around that that, that allowed that to happen
2: and to me, that's the one failing of this episode. I mm. wish there—I wish that had been done a bit more explicitly. Like, you're saying, okay, so maybe Picard's speech at the end is aimed as much at Tarman as it is at Jab. I actually kind of wish, I mean, as, as ham-fisted as it would have been, I, I wish we had had Tarman saying, I don't understand what happened.
0: Huh, yeah, yeah.
2: And, and have Deanna say, you know, it's interesting, I was talking to him before. And that's where it ends, maybe. Because, I mean... Look, yes, he's an awful character. He does awful things. There is no question. But a lot of stuff does not happen in a vacuum. And and to sort of, I mean, to... We're given to understand that he that, that Tarman has played some part. I wish there had been a tiny bit of comeuppance for him as well. Aside from just the shame that's going to be on his family. Sure. Uh, the indication seems to be that he's going to be ashamed of his son. Right. And not necessarily ashamed of anything else that went on. And even if all he did was ignore signs... That is still something that led to some terrible stuff. I mean, so even if all he was was like, a, like like absent in his thoughts about the whole thing, even if he wasn't mistreating him, even if he was just looking the other way on stuff, I mean, they travel together. I mean, there were only two times in the 11 planets that they weren't together. That means there were nine other times that they were. Yeah. He might have picked up on something because, you know, I hear he's intuitive. <laughs>
0: Well, you know what, I I think in that case, you know, we've narrowed down a couple of interesting messages here. It's one, I think, something that the show does make a good case for is it, it exposes violence as the underpinning for this kind of intrusion. You know, if we're using this sort of psychic rape as the very clear metaphor for physical rape. What we're describing about Jev's psyche, about his character, is that it's the sense of power uh, from someone who is powerless um, to insert himself into this violent situation with other people. I think the other thing that we're pointing out here and and really trying to make a case for regarding Jev and his relationship to Tarman and others, possibly others in his family, is a sense of vigilance. Like like you said before, the, this idea of vigilance against this sort of thing happening, being allowed to happen, even if it's not explicit, mm. at least the, the ability to let it happen unchecked.
2: We've said a few times that one of the messages seems to be it takes a village to raise a child. Mm-hmm. Um, it's also possible that it takes a village to destroy one or to let it happen anyway. Yeah. Doesn't happen in a vacuum. I miss Alexander, dude. <laughs> I miss Data's day. Uh, what uh, were the ones? What were the other ones that we didn't like? I miss those. Yeah, yeah. sure. Because wow, this was uh, this was tough. Yeah. And I guess we would have to say that all those things hold up, right?
0: Yeah, I, they have to.
2: Well, then let's say this mission log is produced by Roddenberry Entertainment. Executive producer Rod Roddenberry. You can find out more about. All kinds of stuff associated with Roddenberry, from from things you can buy to ways that they're trying to save the world, what the Roddenberry Foundation that is. Uh, Roddenberry.com is the place to find out about all that. For more exciting Star Trek podcasts, check out Trek FM, that is Trek.fm, and for the latest in Star Trek news and discussion, be sure to visit TrekMovie.com.
0: Next week, the Masterpiece Society.
1: Some of the music for Mission Log provided by Warp 11, online at Warp11.com, and from the album Messages, by Key Theory, free to download at K-I-Theory.com.
2: On one planet, none on the other.
1: And were the Ulians
0: present? The mission launch.
2: Oh, 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 oh yeah, oh, 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 right that's there. That's so cool. That's yeah, so exciting that's to
0: be remembered to be pointed out like that.
1: And transmission.